Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Continue in the spirit of the study of God's Word. So grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 25, 40 verses. We're going to study all of it this morning. Exodus chapter 25 is where we'll be. So use your device or your Bible and we'll get there together. Uh, it's a lot to cover this morning, um, but I think it's, it's highly important that we do it. Uh, and before we get into that, I just I want to say um, last week I used a quote um, from a Franciscan monk. And uh, for years, I have read him and studied him and in the past had used stuff about him. But over the course of the past five or 10 years, his theology has gotten really, really whack. And so I want to apologize. I just want to repent to you to say it's my job um, to guard the hearts and souls of the flock. And I did not do that well last week in that way. Um, And so I want to apologize to you. I believe the quote to be true, but I would say this to you. Don't read any further into his theology. Um, It's crazy. And so don't go too far there, but I believe the quote to be true. I think there are things to learn from different facets of our faith. Uh, But I I just want to be honest and say that to you. Um, So I am repenting, asking for your forgiveness in that way. I see my job as um, I'm kind of of the chef. I'm I'm here to cook a meal, to feed you, to give you a meal to eat. And um, you can listen to podcasts and that's like fast food for you. That's fine. But it's my job for our people to feed us from what God has planted in our garden. And so I want to do that well. And so... um, Yeah, so this morning we're going to walk forward into Exodus chapter 25. And what we're going to see this morning through these 40 verses, I'm going to read all of them because I need you to feel what it feels like to read all of these. For many of us, if you've done like a read through the Bible plan, you get to Exodus 25 and you're like, nope, I'm just going to skip it. I'm not going to do it anymore because this feels ridiculous. So I'm not going to read this. It's important that we read it. And here's why. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, is the baseline or the rhythm on which the melody of the gospel is written. It's the baseline. It's the rhythm on which the melody of the gospel is written. It is important for us to get this rhythm down, to get the bass notes down, that we might hear the beauty of the gospel on top of this. Does that make sense? It's important for us. This will keep coming back up throughout Scripture. And sometimes it's faint and sometimes it's just a pounding kick drum, but we need to be able to hear it to know how we're singing and what we're hearing in the gospel. So Exodus chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning. I want us to just um, spend some time in it and then see how God is leading us and how this has been the rhythm of creation and of the good news of the gospel. So Exodus 25, I'll use other scriptures this morning. This is up on the screen right now. You might want to take a picture of it just so you can see that what I'm teaching this morning is from the word of God. It's everywhere. It's littered in there. And this is just a handful of, of ones I could have used this morning. But this is, uh, this is some of them, the ones I'm going to get to here this morning. So Exodus 25, we're going to read all 40 verses. And if you feel bored, that's Okay. It is boring. This is a laborious text to read. It's going to feel like, I don't know what these things are. I feel like I don't need to know this information. And maybe you don't, uh, but God gave us this. And so I feel like maybe we do. Maybe we do need to know. And so let's read this together. Exodus 25, it'll be on the screen. It'll be on your Bible and your device. I'm going to read it. So listen and journey with me. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel. They take from me a contribution. And let me just say, I started coughing earlier, 
and 40 of you gave me a contribution. So I want to say thank you. I got water from Jeff. I got water out there in the lobby. I got dozens of mints and cough drops. So thank you for looking out for me. I feel like a little child who needs mama to take care of me, but thank you. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. All right. All right, that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out uh, shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. Then you shall make its plates and its dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece under it, with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold and it shall be made with all these utensils 
out of a talent of pure gold. It's about 75 pounds of gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. I need a drink after that. So that was, that's a lot, right? I mean, that's a lot. And it's super detailed. Um, there's a lot of just random things in there. But it feels like this matters to God because of how detailed he is being. I don't know how you put things together at your home, um, particularly Ikea things. I don't know how you do it. But if you put certain things together, are you the kind of people who have pieces left over? Any of you have pieces left over every time? Yeah. So I think that's why God has to be specific. You don't, don't have pieces left over. That's not good. But he lays this out for them in a way that is very detailed and very specific. And so that's important for us moving forward. What he's describing to them is what we would call the tabernacle. It says the tabernacle. It is or called the tent of meeting. It's a tent. It's nothing fancy. Well, it has fancy things in it, but it's, it's just a tent. And if you notice, there's rings on everything and poles because he wants this to be a mobile tent. It's like a double-wide tabernacle. He wants them to be able to carry it whenever they're journeying through the wilderness and into the promised land. It's not going to be stationary, so they're going to have to be able to move everything. And God is so brilliantly intentional with his engineering that he knows how to set this up in a way that will be portable. But the one big thing I want us to understand this morning is that we serve a God who wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his people. We saw this a few weeks ago when we saw that God invited them up the mountain. He wants to be with them. Even when they don't think they want to be with him, he wants to be with them. And what we see is that God is always the initiator. He always initiates the way to bring the people to him or him to the people. And so we're seeing it here. God wants to be with his people. But again, this is a rhythm for us. It's a beat on which the rest of the gospel is written and sung over. So I want to show you a picture. Over the next five chapters, it's just like this for five straight chapters. So come back next week and see what else we can find. But this is the rest of it. And so he's laying out how to build this tabernacle. So here's kind of a rough sketch of what it would look like. <clears throat> and so we've talked about the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked about the table of showbread. That's the table he asked them to build. And then we've talked about this seven-pronged uh, lampstand or a menorah is what's there as well. Later on, we'll talk about the altar of incense, the bronze basin, the bronze altar, and then some of the curtains as well. But here's what we're building. He's building a courtyard and he's building a holy place and then the holy of holies. So on the next slide, I'm just going to show you this. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. These three places, this is a kind of a three-tiered approach to being in the presence of God. <clears throat> You've got the courtyard, and notice the orientation. You've got the courtyard, and this is where the people are. Uh, it's where Ariel wants to be. I want to be where the people are. This is where that is. And then from there, to get further into the presence of God, you move into the holy place. In the holy place, you've got to pass through a curtain. And on this curtain, um, it's beautiful, fine linen, but also on it are um, sewn into it pictures of cherubim, angels, sort of angels, but they're, they're on that curtain to the right. Now, once you move through the holy place, the high priest, the super sanctified one, can move into the holy of holies through another curtain, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. So what you'll notice is God's called Moses up on the mountain. He set his people free. They've been in the wilderness for a season or so, and now God invites Moses into his presence. And you've got to think, man, if you're Moses and you're about to step into the presence of God, it's going to be awesome. 
And especially the way God has to lead into that, it's gonna have to be pretty phenomenal. And God's like, hey, I made these, I made these blueprints. Can we talk about them? Goes, this is the first thing you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that important to God. And notice how God does it. God starts at the middle and he works his way out. He starts with the Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of Holies. And then later he would begin to build out what this actually means uh, in regards to, to the tent. Now, I said, this is a rhythm. This is a beat on which the rest of the gospel is written. But this beat didn't just start here. Notice the three tiers. Notice uh, you can picture them as concentric circles, ways to move more deeply into the actual presence of God. Notice that. It's not the first time we've seen this. God created the world. Everything was as it should be. What we have to understand, and we call it the Garden of Eden, and we think it's just a garden that God created. No, no, no. God created the world, and he created a region called Eden. And inside of Eden, he created a garden. And Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they sin and they fall from the presence of God. And God is a holy God. So you need to be holy to be in his presence. They have sin. God meets with them, provides covering for them. He initiates relationship. But then at some point, God has to care for his children in a particular way. And so in Genesis 3, he kicks them out of the garden. Verse 24. And he, God, drove out the man, drove out Adam. And at the east, notice this, at the east of the garden he placed, of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned everywhere. Where in the garden? You can say it louder. It's right there. You're not going to get it wrong. Good. It's the east. Good. And what did he place there? Cherubim. Good. That's important for us. Okay. And why did he place them there? It continues to guard the way to the tree of life. What we learned earlier in Genesis uh, 1, 2, and then the beginning of 3 is that when God created the garden, he placed two trees, the Bible says, in the midst or in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that one, and the tree of life. Now, the tree of life, scripturally, biblically, is a reference of the powerful, life-giving presence of God. That's what it carries on as. And this tree would continue. We'll see this in the future. But this is important for us in Genesis 3. So let's go back to the picture. And you see, again, this is the tabernacle. And you see the three tiers. You see how it's oriented. And from Genesis 3, here's what we learn on the next slide, is that it's just like the garden. Eden is the courtyard. The garden is where God's people are, where Adam and Eve are. And the tree of life is where the powerful, life-giving presence of God is. The tabernacle is not a new idea. The tabernacle is built on the same pattern as Eden and even the orientation because where are the cherubim? That's right, they're on the east of the garden. Each of these curtains covered in pictures of cherubim to guard the way, the path back into the midst of the garden or the tree of life. Well, if that wasn't significant enough, turn to Exodus chapter 24 Chapter before we're studying today, last week we studied how God called Moses up a mountain, but it wasn't just him. He called other people up. So Exodus chapter 24, it'll be on the screen, verses one and two. And then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron and his two sons, and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. So he calls them up and notice the groups of people here in verse two. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, and the others, the elders, shall not come near, and the people shall not even come up with them. Three tiers of people. And so then this would look like this. 
the people at the base of Mount Sinai in the courtyard, the elders into the holy place. And Moses alone is taken up into the cloud, into the very presence of God at the top of the mountain. This rhythm, this drumbeat of the tabernacle, of the way into the presence of God is not new and it won't be stuck here in Exodus 25. This is the beat. This is the rhythm on which the rest of the gospel has been written. So with that in mind, let's go back into 25 and see how significant this is. This matters. And it doesn't just matter here. This mattered back in the garden. This matters all the way in the future. And this matters for you and for me. We all have a desire in our hearts to get into the presence of God. And you wouldn't say it that way. I don't think we know how to say that. But we want things to be like Eden again. We want things to be perfect. Pay attention to the world with that lens. You want to know why people are fighting for things that you think are wrong? Because they think that's how you get to perfection. The world believes the way back to the garden is through sexual freedom. That's how you get back to the garden. The world would tell you the way to get back into perfection where everyone loves each other is that everyone can just love each other. And you can love whoever you want to love and do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it with. That's, that's what the world is fighting for, to get back into perfection. Financially, it's how people try to get their lives back into Eden, back into perfection, back into the way things are meant to be. It's why people marry the people they marry. It's why they desire to have kids or don't desire to have kids. It's why they pursue the jobs and the incomes they pursue because they're trying to get, we are all trying to get back to Eden. And God has said, yeah, I know we all want to. And I'm going to give us a way to get back. I'm going to give us a way to get back. And he's laid this all throughout scripture. Exodus 25, verse one, the Lord said to Moses. So Moses is in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And what he gets up there is not an attaboy. It's not just hugs. They're not just watching TV. He gets the blueprints. Speak to the people of Israel, he says, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Now, God doesn't command the contribution. He asks for it from those whose hearts move to give a contribution. Doesn't demand it. It's just not, it's just not mandatory. This in here, this contribution has been, hey, has your heart moved? Then give to me and give. And then God says, oh, and by the way, here's the contribution in verse two that I'm asking for. Or verse three, I'm asking for gold, silver, and bronze. Now, this sounds all like my six-year-old. Like, she's just going to go for it. Like, if she's going to ask for something, like, give me the gold, Daddy. I want the gold. I want some diamonds. I want the most expensive thing on the menu. My like, baby, you're not, I don't think we can do that. God is saying, give me these things, gold, silver, and bronze. Then verse 4, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, which for us doesn't make sense because you can go to the craft store. You can go to Joanne's and just buy this. This is significant. This would have been hard to make. This is expensive kind of stuff. Fine twined linen, goat's hair, maybe not quite as expensive. Then verse five, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps. What lamps? Well, God hasn't told him yet, but he's told him I need oil. Oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. What breast piece? He'll tell him, tell him that later. And then let him make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So now God's saying, here's what I want to do. I'm coming down. 
I've invited you up, that didn't work. So here's what I wanna do, I wanna come to you. And if you're reading, you're like, God, it feels like he just can't quit these people. Yeah, he can't quit them. I'm coming to you. I tried a few things, it didn't work. Like we tried the garden, we tried Abraham, or first we tried Noah, then we tried Abraham, like we've tried all the things. And God says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna come to you. But the words he uses are interesting. He says, come in, I want you to make me a sanctuary. Sanctuary means a sacred space or a holy place. Make it holy for me. Why? Because God's holy. Because God's not, uh, not coming down to go to Golden Corral with you. Like he needs a holy place. He needs, he needs that. So make me a sanctuary. Then he says that I may dwell in their midst. Make me a holy place because I want to be with my people. So I'm coming down, but here's what I need. I need a sanctuary. I need a place set apart for me, just for me, that I may dwell in their midst. This word dwell in the Hebrew is actually where we get the word tabernacle. To tabernacle is to dwell, to settle in with something or someone. I want a tabernacle where? In their midst. I don't want a tabernacle in the promised land and wait for them to get there to me. I want a tabernacle with them now, where they are, in the journey, on the way there. God is a God who wants to be with his people. He will fight to be with his people. And he will make a way for his people to be with him. This is who God is. Then look at verse 9. Exactly as I show you. So what we're learning here is that Moses didn't just hear about how to build this. God showed him how to build it. And now, it might have been a little tiny model. It could have been some weird infusion of like alternate reality because God can do that. And so maybe that was it. Maybe God actually took Moses to heaven and he said, this is what it looks like. I want this on earth. I don't know, but he showed him. He didn't just tell him. He opened his eyes to see it. He showed him concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. All its furniture, so you shall make it. I want you to make it exactly as I've shown you. Don't cut corners. Don't skip steps. Don't have pieces left over. Verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Now, you read ark and you think Noah's ark. It's not the same word. This just means a box. Build me a box made of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit is about 18 inches or so, a foot and a half. So we've got a rectangular box as tall as it is wide. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings inside the ark to carry the ark by them. And the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. That's important in later portions of the Old Testament. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. That testimony is referring to the Ten Commandments. I want you to put the tablets of stone into the ark of the covenant. That's important for us, what's being put in there. Later, other things will be added. But God is saying, I want you to put this. And the ark will go in the holy of holies. It'll go in the most sacred place. I want that to be there. And inside of that box, I want there to be my Ten Commandments, the law. Verse 17 you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. Now this word mercy seat, you can underline, circle it if you want to. Some translations call this the atonement cover. The Hebrew word is kaporet, and it, it means that. It means a covering for atonement. God's asking for a lid for the box, but a specific kind of lid. 
And on this lid, he's going to tell them what he wants it to look like. And most translations called it the mercy seat or the seat of mercy. This is the throne of God. This is where God will dwell to be with his people. Verse 18, you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. So two cherub. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. They're on the ends facing each other. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And if you feel like God just said that, he did just say that. Because if, if you're like me and they're like me, we need God to say things more than once. Put the testimony in there. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So we're going to settle here this morning on the Ark of the Covenant. And then God has them make a table of showbread. There will be 12 um, pieces of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is in the holy place. Uh, the priests could eat that after like six days or so. That's a whole other sermon. And then you've got the lampstand, the menorah, seven uh, lamps. And they're not candles. These are oil lamps. So you would make a bowl to pour the right fragrance of oil into with a wick and you'd light it. And then morning and evening, this should be lit so that it lights the showbread, which represents the people. Again, we're going to settle here on the ark here uh, tonight, particularly on the mercy seat. So God says, I'm coming down and I'm giving a place where I'm going to come to. It's inside the Holy of Holies. You got to do some work to get in there. But I'm coming. I want to be with my people. Now, a few books later, the book of Leviticus would tell us more about how they're going to use these things, like the basin and the altar, and particularly the mercy seat. In Leviticus chapter 16, uh, we learn about what's called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was a day in which the high priest, once a year, would make his way from the courtyard into the holy place, and then into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was. And there he would make a sacrifice on behalf of the people to cover their sins. They would make daily sacrifices to pay the penalty of their sin. But this one was to cover over, to atone for their sin. And what sin, you ask? Well, the sin when they broke the law. Well, what law? Well, the law that's in the Ark of the Covenant, that law. And the high priest would make that sacrifice and he would take the blood of the animal And he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat or on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant so that literally the blood of the sacrifice would cover the broken law of the people. So that when the presence of God descended upon the mercy seat, upon the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the eyes of God did not see the broken sin or the broken law of his people, but instead saw the shed blood of the sacrifice to cover over the sin. This mercy seat is huge and significant. The way God has constructed all of this is significant. And it takes us into the New Testament. In John chapter 1, which is a gospel, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all have different ways to tell the stories about Jesus based on who they're writing to and their perspective with him. Matthew begins his account with the genealogy of Jesus to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. 
John goes a bit further back than that. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. This should take us all the way back to the creation account and back to the garden with the light and then the life, the tree of life. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The lampstand inside of that holy place, there would have been no sunlight or moonlight to get in. It's the only thing lighting it. This is a reference to that. But then we jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word in the Greek is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word from Exodus 25, tabernacle. And the word became flesh, put on this tent, put on this tent of, of our bodies and tabernacled among us. Why does this matter in Exodus 25? Because Exodus 25 points to Jesus. That's why it matters. And he tabernacled among us. And he continues, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness, this is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Then 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. What do we all desire? We desire to be back in Eden. We desire to be in the presence of God. And God says in Exodus 25, here's a way. But only the high priest can really be in my presence. And only after he's made himself very, very, very clean. And then we get into the New Testament and John says, no, 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 there's a new way. There's a way into the presence of God and God has come to us. God has tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus that we might actually see God and be with God. Well, then turn to Romans chapter three. Paul in the book of Romans is, is a whole theological dissertation on this, on salvation, on how we're saved and why we're saved and what everything led up to us being saved. John chapter three, or Romans chapter three, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God, the right living, the perfect living of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now Paul is saying in the New Testament, the law isn't how you get to perfection. The law isn't how you get to righteousness. There is another way apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets pointed to this very thing, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul is saying is there's not one of us who can make it into the presence of God. Not one of us. I don't care if your flavor of sin is murder and being addicted, addicted to meth or if your flavor of sin is gossiping about your neighbor on Facebook, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we've all kept us from the presence of God. Every single one of us. There is no distinction. But he continues in 24, and we are justified, we are made just by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by 
faith. This word propitiation is the Greek translation of the word we just read in Hebrew in Exodus 25 for mercy seat or atonement cover. Who is the new atonement cover? It's Jesus. Paul is saying, so now in the presence of God, God no longer looks down and sees your broken sinfulness. He no longer looks down to see the law that you've shattered. Now he sees the shed blood of a perfect spotless lamb on the seat of mercy. And God then has mercy upon us. How do we get into the presence of God? Well, just like they did through the shed blood of a sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews would later say, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It required the blood of Jesus. But through the blood of Jesus, he has made atonement. Paul continues, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over. Does that sound familiar to you, Exodus readers? He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present so that he, Jesus, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter nine, you can read this week, talks more about this, how Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice for us. So here's the thing for us. You and I, our desire innately in us is to be in the presence of God, is to be where everything is as it should be. And you've tried everything to get there. You've tried marrying someone, you've tried marrying another person. And then another person, you've tried it. You tried to have kids, you tried to get the right job, you tried to get the right house. Right now you're trying to sell what was the right house to get a new right house because the market can handle it. And so you're doing all the things. But if you've learned anything, and if you're paying attention at all over the course of your life is that nothing, nothing has satisfied the the longing of your soul. Nothing has. Not a person, not a bank account, not a number, not a car. Nothing has because you were hardwired to be in the presence of God and nothing will satisfy until you're in the presence of God. So then how do we get into the presence of God? Well, he's told us, you got to build me a sanctuary. And in that sanctuary, you got you to trust in the blood of the sacrifice to get you into my presence. This is what God is speaking. But at the beginning of the passage, it's interesting because God is asking for contributions. And not from wealthy people. He's asking for contributions from a nomadic people who were in slavery for 430 years. I don't know what you know about slavery, but they don't pay much. So they haven't bought gold and silver and bronze. They're not buying fine linens. They've got nowhere to dress up like that, nowhere to put on the gold. They've got nothing like that. So where did it come from? Well, you know where it came from. Because when God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt through the, through the plague of the Passover, God told the people of Israel, hey, I want you to ask your Egyptian neighbors for what they have to give to you. And they do. And then the course of the night, while everyone's shrieking and screaming over the death of their firstborn, they begin telling the Israelites, take it all, take everything. Take my gold and silver and bronze, take my purple and blue and scarlet yarn, take all of it. Whatever it takes to appease your God, take all of it. And so after months in the wilderness, God God says, hey, remember that thing? I'm going to need that now. God's not asking a broken people who are impoverished to give to him. He's asking a people whom he has blessed to give back to him. If they really want to be in this presence, here's what it's going to take. The thing you've been lugging around, the thing you did nothing to earn, the thing that was given to you through my power, I'm going to need you to build me a sanctuary. If you want me, it's worth whatever that is. 
Now come to find out, scholars would tell you that's 14 to $18 million worth of things. Which sounds like a lot until you realize there was 2.1 million people. But God has asked for it back to build a sanctuary for him, to build a place of worship. So here's what I'm learning and where I'm leaning here this morning. I think God is inviting us back into his presence, but I think there are things that hold us up from being in his presence. He's given us a way, and if you've been in church at all, you know the way is Jesus. You know it, you've said it, you checked the box on a card, you sang the song at summer camp, you did all of it. But the question is whether or not you're in the presence of God. And here's why I think what holds us back from the presence of God. One is that we really like the things he's given us. We really like what the Egyptians gave us. And if I have to build a house of worship, if I have to build a house of worship in my heart, if, if I become the temple and I need to build a holy of holies in my heart, I don't think I want to use that stuff. Can I build it another way? And God's like, no, 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 exactly the way I showed you. Build it that way. From the things that I have given you. So I think, that, I think that's one issue for us. We really like the things the Egyptians gave us. But I think secondly is this. I think the way we had to come about those things was far too traumatic for us to go back and visit again. Because it really felt like for the Israelites that what they got from the Egyptians was payment that they owed them for years. And so to give it back would mean I have to revisit that trauma. I got to revisit that pain. And so instead of us building a house of worship, building a sanctuary for God, even in our hearts, we built up walls to protect ourselves. This isn't about the bounty we've received. This is about the pain that we endured. So for some of us this morning, you know what's holding you back from being in the presence of God? Past trauma that you haven't given to him. Because you refuse to see it as a way that he's actually blessed you with silver and gold and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. So we're holding on and we've built up walls and we refuse to forgive. We refuse to repent. We blame our spouses and we blame our kids. And we blame the church for not being in the presence of God. You want to know why you're not in the presence of God? Because you haven't built a sanctuary in your heart for the presence of God. That's why. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with his people. We've either become so in love with the gifts of Egypt that we don't, or we've become so um, grieving by the pain of Egypt that we refuse to go back there. Genesis chapter 50, the people of God were in a famine and God had placed Joseph in charge of food in Egypt and his brothers come back to him. And Joseph says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You want to know how you build a sanctuary? Genesis 50, 20. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. To keep people alive. That they would find salvation. You want to know why you can't seem to find the presence of God? Because you've built up walls that are keeping you from people and keeping you from the very presence of God. The very thing he's given you to worship him has become a thing that you harp on and you grieve over and you get angry about and frustrated about. And listen, I love you. You're going to have to move from grief to glory. Can you imagine the Israelites having to give that for this? And they do. 
$18 million worth, nine tons of material. So if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, I believe it's true for us like it was for them. The greatest desire of our heart is to be in the presence of God. And if you're honest, you've tried everything. You thought this marriage would do it, and it did for a little while. And now that's gotten old. There's been betrayal and pain. So you're just not, you're just not gonna do it. You thought it would be that girlfriend or that boyfriend, or you thought it would be that kid that you prayed for and prayed for and prayed for. And what God is reminding us of is that nothing will satisfy, nothing will take you back to Eden except the finished work of Jesus. And what he's asking is that we build a sacred place for him. Now, for some of us this morning, the confession and repentance has to be, God, I've been holding on to this, even though it was from you. But holding on to the joy and the victories, I've been holding on thinking I had done something to earn it. No, no, no. And so what if in your heart what you have to build is a sanctuary out of that? The gift of a child, the gift of your marriage, the gift of your financial stability. But then I wonder, on the flip side, how many of us, it's actually the trauma, it's the pain, it's the suffering for us. For the Israelites that yielded a bounty of gold, silver, bronze, blue, scarlet, and purple yarn, and then God asked to build a sanctuary. So maybe what's happened for you today is that you've spent years building up walls to protect yourself. instead of building a holy place for the presence of God in your life. And how do you know? Well, you know because you're angry constantly at your spouse, because they're not doing what you need to be done for you, because you've made them God, you've made them the one you worship. You're constantly angry at your kids, you're constantly angry at the government, you're constantly angry at your boss, you're frustrated, there's no peace in your heart. Because where the presence of God is, there is peace and there is joy everlasting. And so maybe what happens, has to happen today is that we've got to move from grief into glory today and allow, yes, even that, even that pain to be what yields you the goods to build a sanctuary to worship God today. Maybe this morning you um, desire to be in the presence of God has never been quenched, it's never been met it's because you've never surrendered your heart to the finished work of Jesus. And God will allow you to try everything else until you reach the point where you've got nowhere to look but him. Well, today you can look to him, the author and finisher of your faith, that you would believe he is the way home. He is the way to salvation. He is the way to the presence of God. Maybe what has to happen is you're gonna have to repent today from holding on to either the joy or the sorrow that's kept you from the presence of God. The anger in your heart will never satisfy the hole in your heart. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for the ways that you have breathed fresh wind into my life, that you've opened my eyes to the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of you through it. So God, today, on the rhythm of the tabernacle, God, we, uh, we want to build to you a holy place in our hearts, in this temple of our body, a place to worship you, 
place to find joy and presence again with you. Where we've held back because we've been selfish with what we've gotten, God, I pray you would convict us of it. Where we've held back because we've been afraid of what it would cost, God, I pray you would convict us of it. Open our eyes to see what you're asking and give us courage to follow through. In Jesus' name, amen.